0: this, for it's the Word of God. Paul writes, Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are diversities of ministrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of workings, but the same God who works all things in all. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit to profit withal. For to one is given through the Spirit the word of wisdom, and to another the word of knowledge, according to the same Spirit, to another faith in the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healings in the one Spirit, and to another workings of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another discernings of spirits, to another divers kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But all these worketh the one and the same Spirit, dividing to each one severally, even as he will. For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of the body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For in one Spirit were we all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether bond or free, and were all made to drink of the one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, because I am not the hand, I am not of the body, it is not therefore not of the body." And if the ear shall say, Because I am not the eye, I am not of the body, it is not therefore not of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? But now hath God set the members, each one of them in the body, even as it pleased him. And if they were all one member, where were the body? But now they are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of thee, or again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary, and those parts of the body which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor, and our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness, whereas our comely parts have no need, but God tempered the body together, giving more abundant honor to that part which lacks and there, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffereth, all the members suffer with it. Or one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now ye are the body of Christ, and severally members thereof. And that's for the reading of God's Word. I have three women on my mind this morning. As I begin the message, three women that I don't, um, I don't have a great deal of care for, a great deal of compassion or concern, and I think that it's perhaps worthy of note why it is that I may not care for these three women. The first of them, I don't even know the names of them, to be honest with you, but the first of them is somebody who I read about uh, a number of weeks ago who apparently has developed some terrible allergic reaction to anything synthetic. Uh, Synthetic fibers, uh, uh, plastics, uh, just about anything that is unorganic. Uh, This woman has a terrible reaction to it, and I have read that the reaction is so bad that she will actually die if she's not isolated in a particular kind of room that keeps out any contact with these synthetic materials. I remember driving down the street one day and having that story come to mind. I'd read it that morning, I think, in the paper or something, perhaps heard it on the news. And I remember driving down the street and just very callously, not maliciously, I, I don't want to be misunderstood, but callously thinking, boy, it'd be better for somebody like that just to die. I mean, how could you live in the 20th century and have that kind of reaction? Isn't it interesting that I should react to somebody who's in such a desperate plight as that with that kind of indifference and that kind of distance. Well, I've read another story. I've read many stories. I read every day. But uh, another one that comes to mind, there was a a young woman who was trying to make her way up the uh, corporate ladder who was interviewed in some news magazine. And I don't know her name either. I don't know where she lives. I don't know a whole lot about her. But I think it was interesting that she commented on the women's liberation movement that most of the younger women, the women in this young lady's age bracket, consider those who have advocated women's liberation, who have marched for, uh, say, abortion rights or lesbian rights or uh, the ERA Amendment, what have you, considers them old hags, battle axes, I think was the term she used, Um, younger women, I don't know if this is true or not, but she claimed the trend among younger women today was to overlook all this animosity and all this kind of protesting and just get in there and fight it out and to prove yourself. And um, after all, not everything the Women's Liberation Movement has uh, promised to give women is something that is received as a gift by many young women today. They're not particularly concerned uh, to have utter equality. They like some of the privileges that being a woman has afforded them, in our culture and tradition. And so, here is somebody who is criticizing the women's liberation movement. And I'm thinking to myself, now why is it that I don't have, you know, I I just don't bristle when I read that sort of thing. And I say, wait a minute, that women's liberation movement, that's a very noble movement, that's something worthy of our support. Let's get in there and fight. Let's see if we can change this other young woman's mind. Why do you think that is? And then I also have read, just recently also, an interview with... um, well, I suppose the nicest way to put it in these surroundings is a mistress, a woman who is being kept by a corporate executive, very wealthy, who has enough money to not only take care of his own family and all his very um, uh, expensive habits, but also has um, a woman that he keeps on the side. And she was being interviewed as to the, um, her feelings toward her position in life, and she was extolling the virtues of being a mistress. You know, the great advantages of this, that, uh, well, the hours are good, she said, after all, and she, um, she gets everything she wants. She has plenty of money, and uh, there are no strings attached. She doesn't have to worry about bringing up children or being submissive to this man, on and on and on and on. All of the, um, the terrible side of being a wife has been taken away, and she simply has to endure him at his convenience. Why these three reactions are on my mind this morning is somewhat of the key to this morning's message and exhortation. Why is it I'm not concerned for these women? Well, in the first case, it's not that because you know I do come to my senses and I say to myself, well, that is a terrible plight. Perhaps I shouldn't feel so calloused about that. But the reason that it was easy to be callous and to fall into that, well, and there are all these terrible stories on the news, we can't get emotionally involved in all of them, is that I don't know that woman. I have no common interest with her. I have nothing that brings communion between herself and myself. There's nothing of a mutual consideration for us. I'm not a member of her family. I'm not a member of her social group. She's not my friend. As I say, I don't even remember her name. And so when somebody suffers who is apart from my circle of acquaintances, my family, that sort of thing, even if I, as a human being, might feel some pangs of sorrow for another human being suffering, I think it's just a natural whether you commend it or not, it's a natural thing that we just hear these reports and we have something of an indifference to them. In the second case, where we see the woman's liberation movement, if this younger woman is right, being considered old hat for battle axes I don't get particularly concerned about that because I don't share a common goal with the women's liberation movement I don't see eye to eye with these women and therefore when their movement gets despised and rejected I don't particularly care because I don't have a common goal or an ideological outlook that is shared with these people in the third case Although the mistress may think that she's got a wonderful life, I think that if she stop and think about it, even from a secular, naturalistic standpoint, forgetting the fact that we would condemn that lifestyle from a transcendent standpoint, from what God has said in his word, but even from within her own circle of thought, I would think she'd be able to see that she's really nothing more but a woman of sexual convenience, and there is no dignity or joy in that whatsoever. What does that have to do with the sermon this morning? I want to talk to you about the covenant community and how, in the first place, many people treat it like I treated the case of that woman who was suffering somewhere in the world from synthetic fibers and all the rest. Many people treat the covenant community as though it was some kind of a distant personality and its fortunes in this world are a matter of indifference to them. Moreover, many people treat the covenant community like I treat the Women's Liberation Movement. Because we don't feel a great ideological affinity or don't particularly care about the goals and the achieving of those goals by the community, we are indifferent. And then finally, I think there are some people who treat the covenant community, the Bride of Christ, like that corporate executive treats his mistress. It's a body there for one's convenience. Now, Paul rebukes all three of these attitudes in 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter. Eventually, I want to get to that, but I I would like to develop a thought on the way to looking at 1 Corinthians 12 and making the exhortation that is appropriate for our own congregation. The title of this morning's message is Cooperation and Commitment in the Covenant Community. And to understand that notion of the covenant community, we can begin with the word community. As a simple exercise, I opened up my Webster's Dictionary and found that a community is defined as a unified body of individuals, a body of individuals. Many individuals brought together in one body. They are unified for a particular purpose. These people communicate with one another. You notice there's this uh, cognate relationship between community and communication a community is a communicating body an interacting body where there are common interests common community go together as well common interest and or on the other hand a common policy sometimes the community is considered a group Unified for a particular purpose because they live in a common particular area. We may speak of the community of Placentia, just talking about all the people who share the concerns of that geographical location, if nothing else. But a community is a unified body of individuals who communicate, who have common interests, common policy, who share with one another. They have, if we can put it in Christian terms, a common faith and a common discipline, a common lifestyle, a way of ordering their lives and a common outlook on life. The idea of community is very important in the Bible. Obviously, when you look at the kingdom of God in the Old Testament, in its anticipatory form, the kingdom of God was a nation on the face of the earth. That nation was a community of people. God thought it important that his people be organized in a community. The Old Testament often saw Israel, the community of God's redemptive favor, as a flock, if you were here for our Thanksgiving service, you'll recall the 23rd psalm, the shepherd's psalm, speaks of the Lord being the shepherd of his people, considered as a flock of sheep, a fold of sheep. Often enough in the Old Testament, Israel is seen just that way. Jeremiah 23 and Isaiah 40 and Ezekiel 34 are famous chapters of the Old Testament where address is addressed as the flock of God. Therefore it's not without significance that Jesus when he comes into this world calls his followers sheep and considers himself the good shepherd. In fact, in John the 10th chapter verse 16, Jesus says that the good shepherd's task is to bring all of God's people into one flock, a unified body of people. And he calls his disciples the little flock the little flock, the righteous remnant out of Israel, those who truly believe and follow the Messiah. In John 10, verse 17, by the way, Jesus says that he will lay down his life to unify that flock, that the unifying feature of the new people of God is going to be the death of God's own Son. In Matthew 21, verses 40 and following, Jesus speaks of the kingdom being taken from the Jews. He says, God has put out his kingdom to a vineyard where there are husbandmen who are wicked and will not return to God his due. And so now God takes the kingdom away from the Jews and gives it to a nation producing the fruit thereof. God is creating a new community, a new people of God. In John the fifteenth chapter, Jesus uses the allegory of a vine to speak of the unity of His people. When He says, "I am the branch," you know, I am the vine; ye are the branches. He speaks of Himself being the unifying thread through all of the branches that spread out from the church. Of course, that vine and branch allegory is one that is taken from the Old Testament, Isaiah the fifth chapter, where Israel is considered the vine and branches that God has planted in this world. But now Jesus says, You will become the vine. You will be the new community of God's people. You will be the new flock, the new people of God. In John eleven verse fifty-two, we learn that again, it is the death of Christ that will unify God's people into one community. John eleven fifty two is in the context of Caiaphas saying that it may be expedient for one man to die in order that the nation may be saved. And John points out the irony of those words. That what he says is very true, although the way he intended them is not true. But then John adds these words, and we rarely focus on them, but he adds, And not for the nation only should he die, but that he might also gather together into one the children of God that are scattered abroad. The death of Jesus Christ will serve the function of gathering all of God's people into one flock, even as John, the 10th chapter, had said. And then in John 12, verse 32, Jesus speaks of his being lifted up, and he says, and if I be lifted up, speaking of the manner in which he will die, the crucifixion, I will call all men to myself. I will gather all men to myself. And so the death of Christ is going to be the foundation for unifying a new people of God, a new flock, a new redemptive body. In Matthew 16, Jesus said that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not be able to prevail against that new nation. He was going to build a group of people united into one corporate whole, and that group of people would be united based on his redemptive work. So the idea of community is a widespread conviction in the Bible. It's widespread in the Gospels, even more widespread in the epistles of Paul. The idea of a community runs entirely throughout the New Testament literature. Christians are seen as bound together into a new community. In fact, the basic assumption in the New Testament books is that believers should form a unity based on their doctrinal agreement. And yet when you look at the church today, and I mean in general, but also if you look at any particular congregation, look at our own congregation as an illustration, that sense of community, that sense of being a new people, a bound together people, is often lacking. In fact, I think it's perhaps the exception rather than the rule that we have that sense of being joined together by God's own mercy and grace being made into a new people, a new nation. Well, the Bible tells us that it's God's covenant that makes us that new nation. It is the covenant that God has made with Israel that now passes through the church that has created us, the nation that we are. Ephesians 2, verse 12 is perhaps the clearest indication of that, although there are many others in Scripture. Paul says that you were at that time, this is before they were Christians, you were at that time separate from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. They were strangers from the covenants of the promise. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off are made nigh, again, by the blood of Christ. It's interesting to me how often the unity of the church is tied with the death of Jesus Christ. But by the blood of Christ, you have been brought nigh. He goes on to say that Jesus through his death broke down the barrier between Jew and Gentile that he might create one new body. Verse 16, And might reconcile them both in one body unto God through the cross, having slain the enmity thereof. But they were strangers from the covenant until they came to Jesus Christ. Now they're no longer strangers to the covenants. Now the new covenant has been realized in them. Jesus, at the Lord's Supper, remember, gave the cup, which he said is the cup of the new covenant, that which Jeremiah, the 31st chapter, had looked forward to. Luke chapter 1 says that Jesus came into this world to fulfill the covenant promises of God. In Acts, the third chapter, the apostles declare that what we see happening in our midst is the fulfillment of God's covenant promises. Hebrews stresses that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant for his people, And so God has made a new covenant which has called out of the world a new people to be the new Israel. Throughout Scripture, then, there's the stress upon community, a covenant community, the new Israel of God, as Galatians 6.16 says, and peace be upon the Israel of God, speaking to the church of Jesus Christ, now called the Israel of God. Perhaps the most vivid and expressive image, though, for the community as a corporate body of God's people, the redemptive messianic community, is found in Paul's image that is um, at least in four of his epistles emphasized, the image of a body. In Romans, the 12th chapter, verses 4 to 8, Paul speaks of the church as a body, where he wants to stress that the church is a unity, but that unity doesn't demand uniformity. We can be unified even though there is diversity of expression in the church. Romans 12, verses 4 to 8. For even as we have many members in one body, and all the members have not the same office, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and severally members one of another, and having gifts differing according to the grace that was given us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of our faith, or ministry, Let us give ourselves to our ministry, or he that teacheth to his teaching, or he that exhorteth to his exhorting. And he that giveth, let him do it with liberality. He that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Many, many forms of ministry in the church, but one body. In Ephesians chapters 1, 4, and 5, the church is specifically called the body of Christ. In Colossians 1, the church is the body that Jesus ministers for. Indeed, in Ephesians and Colossians, in Paul's theology, Jesus is the source of that body's life and its fullness. He is the head of the body, which um, perhaps is a little misleading. I'm not going to get into a long academic discussion of this with you this morning, but many people think of the head image as the head of the body like the human body. It's very unlikely that Paul was thinking in those terms because he thinks of the head supplying the nourishment to the body. And that isn't the way biologically things happen. The head there, perhaps, is best taken as the head of the corporation, the one who orders and supplies and gives the fullness and direction to the corporation. But Nevertheless, there is this body imagery, and that is precisely now having set this context up what we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The church, like a human body, has various parts which are necessary to each other for the whole to function efficiently. And Paul draws a number of important implications from that fact that the church is a body, a corporation, a community created by God's covenant mercies, a covenant community. In the first place, Paul says this community must cooperate. You can't have the ear and the eye, the hand and the foot, whatever, parts of the body, deciding they're going to go their own way. Just imagine what it would be for a human body to try to function that way. Okay? So the foot decides that it's going to go to the show and the hand's going to decide that it's going to go to to bed, right? And so they all go their separate ways. Or the eye says, well, no, I think I'm going to sleep, but the ear says, no, I want to listen to some music. A human body like that would just be torn apart. In fact, we can't even imagine a human body doing that because we know there's a there's a central agency in the human body that keeps the hand and the foot and the eye and the ear and all the rest coordinated in their efforts and their goals, their functions. Paul says that's what the church should be like. There should be cooperation. There should be a commitment to one another also because when Paul speaks of the many gifts which have been given to the church by the Holy Spirit, he says specifically, it's for the profit of all. Why do I exercise the ministry and the grace that Jesus has given to me? Do I do that for my own benefit? Well, if so, I could just go off and do it anywhere. I could just be, for instance, a freelance uh, professor here, there, and everywhere. I could write articles for this or that person and be answerable to nobody. I could write what I want to write on. I could write in the way that I want to write. In fact, I could even decide my own doctrinal perspective. But now, you know, when I suggest that to you, I can almost see on your faces, you say, well, no, no, no. wait a minute. Ministers aren't supposed to do that. They're supposed to be bound by their confession of faith and by that sola scriptura principle. You can't just make up your own theology. You're supposed to be bound to the theology which, is Christ, which Christ has committed to the church. And you just don't minister just anywhere you minister for the sake of the body and within the body, to the body. As Ephesians the fourth chapter says, all ministry is for the building up of the body of Christ. Let's look at Ephesians 4 in that regard. I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beseech you to walk worthily of the calling wherewith you were called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, giving diligence to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace there is one body and one spirit, even as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But unto each one of us was grace given according to the measure of the gift of Christ. And then if you skip down to verse 11, and he gave some to be apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Why? For the perfecting, of the saints unto the work of ministering unto the building up of the body of Christ till we all attain unto the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a full-grown man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and craftiness after the wiles of error but speaking truth and love may grow up in all things Into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom all the body fitly framed and knit together through that which every joint supplieth according to the working and due measure of each several part, maketh the increase of the body into the building up of itself in love. Let me put it to you very bluntly. You know what's wrong with this church? It's ministers. That's what's wrong with this church. who are the ministers of this church? My guess is you would probably be quick to say, well, Jim and Greg, right? They're the elders here. Paul says the ministers of the church, everybody. Everyone has a ministry in this church. But you know what the problem is? Not everyone's exercising their ministry. Some are being selfish with their gifts. Some are exercising their gifts, but not for the sake of the body, but for other purposes, maybe for their own vainglory, maybe for other groups of Christians, maybe for a select group of friends, but not for the body. The problem with this church is it's ministers. That's always true. You can go into any church and say that. There's problems in this church. It's the minister's fault. Now, that may be the individual minister who stands and preaches on a regular basis. That happens from time to time. But even when that happens, I tend to think the problem is more broadly the minister's, plural, fault, because they aren't exercising mutual edification and discipline with one another the exhortation that should be very prevalent within the christian community in 1 corinthians 12 that body image that paul brings out is used to point out that we need each other we need each other we aren't like that woman who is halfway around the world allergic to synthetic fibers and we just say when we hear about one another's problems well boy that's that's pretty bad no that kind of indifference shouldn't characterize the christian community paul says in first corinthians 12 that when you have this concept of a covenant community the corporate body of christ he says rather in verse 26 whether one member suffers all the members suffer with it or one member is honored all the members rejoice with it when's the last time we all got together and suffered because one person was suffering or rejoiced over the good things that happened to a particular member. Paul says if you understand the body, that's what happens. We need each other. We need to respect one another. Now there's a tendency in the Christian community to have a hierarchy of evaluation. There are some people who are very necessary and hopefully valuable to the congregation. That might be because most people think in priestly terms of the minister. We obviously have to have our professional religious person. And this has been perpetuated through the Roman Catholic Church, and every false religion of the world has their set-apart religious people who do the religious work that the common man won't do. And so we too, in this congregation, have our minister as well as an elder. We have our religious professionals, And because we have them, then, well, we can go on our way. But then, you see, we we do know there are some others who also are important to the church. We do need people, for instance, like the church secretary or the treasurer, the organist, whatever it may be. Or there may be somebody who is set apart because of his or her evangelistic work or teaching ministry that is respected. But for one or another reason, we have those people that we highly esteem or think are very important in the church and those who are... Very, very important, but not as important. And then a little bit less and a little bit less. And then there are those people who we don't think, well, we can do without them. That's nice when we have warm bodies and they come, but we can do without them. And Paul says, those members of the body which you think are the least honorable, God has bestowed on them the more honor. Maybe just because they haven't got, in the natural sense, more ability, more flashiness than other people the very presence that they do bring, and the ministry that they do have is all that more important. We need each other. We need to respect each other. We need to sympathize with one another. We need to recognize that we are a community of faith, a created community, by God's mercy, created through His covenant love, and that we are bound together in one body, And so I can think of five things, anyway, that follow now as subordinate points to what I've just said from 1 Corinthians 12. First of all, I think Paul would have something to say to us about negative attitudes. We look at Ephesians 4 as the parallel passage to 1 Corinthians 12. In Ephesians 4, verse 3, Paul says, giving diligence to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Giving diligence to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It's interesting, Paul doesn't simply say, peace is nice, if you can have it, get it. He doesn't simply say, try to be unified. He says, give diligence that you stay unified and that there be peace among you. And so, when we have a mindset, which is very easy to have among people that put doctrinal matters High on the list of priorities, and who have studied and are to be commended for their studying and knowing the truth. That mindset sometimes carries over beyond just what we read on the paper and how we're supposed to get our doctrine put out correctly, to a general attitude, of a general spirit that is always looking for something to be wrong, always looking for that which is not agreeable to us always looking for that element of something or that aspect of something that we can criticize or we can say we're dissatisfied with. We're always looking for the imperfections. And Jesus had a marvelous story about people who go around looking in each other's eyes, you know, for the little cinder that may be found there. He said the biggest problem you have in finding is that there's a log sticking out of your own eye. Those who have negative, pervasive, negative attitudes about the church of Jesus Christ have such a log in their eye. They don't understand how far they stray from the spirit of the New Testament concept of the covenant community. They have such a log there that, frankly, we shouldn't listen, even if they should accidentally find a cinder in the eye of the church. Those who focus on negative things are out of accord with the whole concept of a covenant community, a corporate body, the body of Christ. Paul says you should be diligent, rather, to keep the unity of the Spirit. You should be working hard to keep it. And I think the reason he says you have to work hard is because Paul found in his own experience. I found in my experience it's hard to keep unity. People are naturally not very easy to get along with, and that's because they're depraved. They're sinners. And sin doesn't make you a very likable and attractive person. That may sound surprising, the way we embrace our sins and run after them, but sin does not make us attractive. And so when we are sinful, when we lack humility, when we lack those virtues which God would commend, we are not attractive to others, even though we may think we're very attractive to ourselves. And when you get two people who have that problem in one room, then you've got the potential for problem. And when you get 30 who all have that problem, and a 100, and you can see how the problem develops. just more and more crisscrossing of problems. People who will not diligently keep themselves restrained when it comes to criticism so that they might have that unity, that bond of peace, which Paul wants the church to exemplify. Negative attitudes are out of place. They must be out of place if Paul says, look, even those less uh, uh, seemly parts of the body which um, God highly honors, which you don't. If we're not supposed to criticize that, how much more should a generalized attitude, negative attitude, be inappropriate in God's people? A a second thing that follows from what Paul says about the body, I think, is that there must be a mutual care and respect. I've alluded to this already. In verses 25 and 26, he says, There should be no schism in the body, but the members should have the same care one for another. We should show mutual care, mutual respect for one another. Thirdly, Paul says, that there should be an accurate self-assessment that takes place. One should look at himself or herself in terms of the body of Christ and accurately assess what is found there. Now, two things can go wrong here. Your assessment can be too positive. You know, I'm really indispensable to the body of Christ. You know, these people ought to be really happy that I'm in this church. Just think where they'd be if I wasn't here. Unless you think I'm exaggerating. In one sense, I'm exaggerating. I don't know that anybody has explicitly said that to me. But time wouldn't allow for me to tell you how often I've had that attitude expressed when you go to people who say, well, we're going to leave the church. And so, there, we're going to leave. I feel like saying, well, you want to cut your self off from the body of Christ that's your problem but I mean don't think that we're going to be in tears over you leaving but people have this attitude that you know we're indispensable and so you know the best thing we can do if we want to get even with you or to show you just who we are is to leave now what would you do if you had a hand that talked like that Hand said, I don't need you body I'm gonna take off and you say oh yeah and how good a hand are you gonna be out there and you haven't got an arm to swing you around, or a heart to pump blood to you, or a mind to direct the fingers. I mean, people who cut themselves off from the body of Christ do despot to themselves. There needs to be an accurate self-assessment. It shouldn't be so positive that we fail to see where we really stand in the sight of God. The second verse of Ephesians 4, I think, is very appropriate in that regard. Paul says, With all lowliness and meekness and patience, forbearing one another in love. When you do this assessment of your gifts, do it with lowliness. Just admit that you're nothing more but a little finger, a little eyeball, a little ear in the body, and that by God's grace you have that ministry, but it's only a part. On the other hand, your evaluation oughtn't to be too negative yourself. What if you sit and say, Well, I can't preach. I can't teach a Bible study. I'm not good at evangelizing. I'm nothing in the church of Jesus Christ. This body doesn't need me. I see that attitude from time to time, too. But Paul says we oughtn't to think that way, as we've already said in passing. The, the less seemly parts of the body are bestowed, are, are given the more honor by God. And so don't be too negative and don't be too positive about yourself. Have an accurate, evaluation, and assessment of your gifts and your place in the body. Fourthly, I think you should have godly goals. When you think about your life, when you set out for yourself the goals that you're trying to achieve, remember that you're part of a new community. You are not some random individual who is, for instance, a baseball player or a corporate executive or somebody who listens to a particular kind of music or has the particular friends, and then also another facet of my life, and I also belong to the Covenant Community Church. See, Paul didn't think that way. So your life has been absorbed now. You're part of a body. You think of yourself as an individual because you have specific gifts, but they are gifts within the body. Your life is no longer yours. Of course, in the the highest sense, it belongs to God. But where does God put you to work? Where does God make you function as a Christian within the body of Christ. And so what should your goals be? Your goals in life ought to be the goals of the church because we're all members of the body. You can't have the hand saying, well, I have this goal and the foot has that goal. The hand and the foot have got to share the same goal, the goal of the body itself. Jesus speaks of the church having the keys of the kingdom. Often enough in Scripture, we don't have time to look at these passages, but often enough, the Bible speaks of entering the kingdom. You see that in Mark 9 and Matthew 7, Luke 16. A number of passages speak of entering the kingdom. How do you enter the kingdom? Jesus said in Matthew 16 to Peter that the keys of the kingdom have been given to the officers of the church. I find it not amusing but very disappointing in a number of Christian scholars as well as people who read their books who have the attitude, we want to be valuable for the kingdom of the church. Oh boy, what a bunch of turkeys. We don't need the church. Forget that. But Jesus said, don't you see, the church holds the keys to the kingdom. You can't function in the kingdom if you can't function in the church. Do you like me to say that again? because I know that's going to come as a wet slap to a few people. You can't function in the kingdom unless you learn to function in the church. If your gifts haven't been proven in the church, if you haven't shown the attitude which is befitting of a member of the body of Christ, then what you accomplish out there in the world and your grand plans for the kingdom means nothing in the eyes of God. The church has the keys of the kingdom. And you enter the kingdom. Through the agency of the church. And so when Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, you see how utterly absurd it is to say, I'm seeking the kingdom, but the church, that's back there. Maybe if I have time later. Now, if you're seeking first the kingdom of God, you better seek those who have the keys of the kingdom of God. You'd better function well within the body of Christ if you want your gifts to be approved outside the body of Christ and to be beneficial for the advance of God's kingdom on earth. And that brings me to my fifth point, and that's one about priorities. Not only should our negative attitudes be taken away by this passage, speaking of the covenant community, not only should there be mutual care and respect for one another so that we need each other, we respect one another, we sympathize with one another, not only should there be an accurate self-assessment and godly goals set in our lives, We need to have the right priorities. It's a very interesting passage or two in the Psalms having to do with priorities in terms of the covenant people of God that I'd like to share with you before we close this morning. Psalm 102, verse 14. Psalm 102, verse 14, we read, For thy servants take pleasure in her stones and have pity upon her dust. Whose stones? Whose dust? Zion's stones. Zion's dust. And when Zion shall lie in ruins, the servants of God will take pity upon the very dust of the ruins. We have a lot of people today who, if the church were to be scattered, to be destroyed, to suffer great setbacks and persecution, would probably say, well, they have it coming. Or big deal. But you see, God's servants, they loved the stones of Zion. They pitied the very dust of Zion. They would give themselves for the sake of the covenant community. The psalmist says this in Psalm 137, verse 6. Let me read verses 1 through 6. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yes, we wept when we remembered Zion. Zion. "'Upon the willows in the midst thereof "'we hanged up our harps. "'For there they that led us captive "'required of us songs, "'and they that wasted us "'required of us mirth, "'saying, "'Sing us one of the songs of Zion. "'How shall we sing Jehovah's song "'in a foreign land? "'If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, "'let my right hand forget her skill. "'Let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth "'if I remember thee not. "'If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy.' Why didn't the psalmist say, I'll go into captivity and I'm going to look out for me, number one. You know, I'm going to take care of myself as an individual. I'm going to learn to get along with Babylon. I'm going to fit into their society. I'm going to be comfortable. The rest of God's people, they can get beat up. They can get tossed around. They can have a hard time, but I'm going to look out for me. But he said, no, I won't even sing songs in a foreign land. He says, let my right hand become dead and my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth if Jerusalem is not my highest joy, if I don't prefer it above my own chief joy. Now, how many of us would say that about the church of Jesus Christ, the covenant community? How many would say that about the new Jerusalem, the new Israel? Let all of my skill be taken away. If I don't perform it for the sake of God's people on earth, not for me individually, but corporately for God's people, that should be my priority. Paul himself exemplified that attitude in Philippians. Philippians is such a fantastic book, it would be easy to take this opportunity to preach through all of it. But let me just read a few portions of Philippians to show you what Paul's attitude was toward the church. Philippians 1, verse 3, he says, I thank my God upon all my remembrance of you, that is the Philippian church, always in every supplication of mine on behalf of you all, making my supplication with joy for your fellowship and furtherance of the gospel. Paul says, every time I pray, I pray for this furtherance of the gospel and our fellowship. That's how important you are to me. He goes on to speak about the church growing up Later on in this same chapter, in verse 21, he says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if to live in the flesh, if this shall bring fruit from my work, then what shall I choose? I know not. But I am in a strait betwixt the two, having the desire to depart and to be with Christ, for it is far better. Yet to abide in the flesh is more needful for your sake. Paul says, if I prefer my own desire, he says, I hope I die. I don't care if they take my life. I'm glad to be with the Savior. But if I live, I minister to you. And so for your sake, I will live. Not only that, in Philippians 2, verse 17, he says, Yes, and if I am offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. And in the same manner, do you also joy and rejoice with me. Paul says, I'm willing to pour myself out for the service of the church of Jesus Christ. For you, I'll be a sacrifice. What did Paul live for? Did he live for Paul? Did he live for the individual? Did he live for the body of Christ? Did he live for the covenant community? It's very obvious that the New Testament would tell us that we need to cooperate with the covenant community and we should be highly committed to the covenant community. It's a crucial New Testament image, and there are many ethical implications that follow from it. Let me give you seven things to think about. If you, too, would like to, as Paul, live in this context of cooperation and commitment to the new covenant community of God, these are ethical implications that follow from what I've said about negative attitudes and mutual care and accurate self-assessment and godly goals and priorities. First of all, what is your attitude when it comes to criticizing other members of this church? Now, let's stop being general and stop being, you know, teaching a, a, a theological background. I'm just, very specifically, ask yourself, how often do you go home from church and you say, well, I don't like what she or he said? or maybe it's the minister, I don't care, but look at your negative attitudes and ask, am I pursuing the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? Secondly, look at the potential for factions within the church. We already have some people who divide themselves off from even a small body like this, because even in a small body like this, they don't think they can find enough doctrinal agreement to keep them around. To me, that's just amazing. We share so much, but if we differ on some narrow point, then we've got to find another group. By the way, if that should ever become your spirit, I'll tell you what your outcome will be. You'll go from one church to another to another until finally the church has been reduced to a little circle drawn around your own feet. And even then, you might not always agree. That will never happen. So learn what it means to avoid factions to make use of a confession of faith as the badge of our unity rather than my own individual ideas. Thirdly, ask yourself about attendance at functions of the covenant community. How important is it to you that this particular covenant community meets together to study the Bible on Wednesday evenings? Or do you treat the church somewhat like a mistress, therefore your own sexual convenience. Now in this case it's not sexual obviously it's spiritual. But is the church there for your spiritual convenience? Well, when I think I need a, you know, shot in the arm, well then of course I'll go to church or I'll go to Bible study or I'll go to community life, but but then when I don't feel that way I won't. Attendance not only at the worship services but at the community life, at Bible studies, social affairs. How do we look at these things? We say, well, you know, I'd rather watch the SC Notre Dame game. Now, that would have been a tough thing. If we would have had an activity yesterday afternoon, it would have been hard for me to break away from the TV set. But by God's grace, I hope I sure would, because there's a sense of priorities, that I live for the sake of the covenant community. And the covenant community doesn't live for the sake of me, for my convenience, just to come and go. It's like some kind of divine candy machine. You know, and I come and I make my selection when I want it. And so many of you come, of course, and then the sermon doesn't happen to be the particular handle you would have pulled that day, and then you say, well, then you're mad at the machine. But the church doesn't live to be at the convenience of others. It lives for the sake of God's glory. Fourthly, ask yourself whether you you have been availing yourself of the provisions of the covenant community. How many times during this last year do you think you have filled out the home Bible study sheets? I want to remind you that the home Bible study sheets are one page, usually eight to ten questions at most. How often have you taken the time in your busy schedule to help build up the body and build up yourself into the full stature of Christ by doing a little bit of Bible study at home? How often have you used the sermon and review that's in the communique? My guess is, if you're anything like me, and I'm not standing up here in self-righteous condemnation saying these things to you, if you're anything like me, you get something in the mail, you're in a hurry. You say, well, here are these questions. That's interesting. What else is happening in the church? Put it aside. Hopefully, you'll go back and pick up that and sit down with your family and say, well, now, did we listen to the sermon? Do we understand this? Should we go back and look at the text again? Have we been applying these things to our lives? Are we making use of this? How many of us read the text before we come to church on Sunday? It's published every week, virtually every week. You can know what I'm going to preach on. If you were to read it ahead of time and have your mind set on these things, how much more would it mean to you when I preach, or when whoever preaches does so? Well, are you availing yourself of the provisions of the body of Christ? Are you concerned to be a growing body, so we might grow up into the stature of Christ, so that we aren't tossed about by every wind of doctrine? Fifthly, are you volunteering for service? I get the... No, I don't get the impression. That's far too euphemistic. Let me be honest. I'll tell you that there are some of you out there who have gifts that God has given you, wonderful gifts, and you're being selfish with them. Now, you say, Okay, I no longer want to be selfish. I have learned from this sermon, Pastor. What should I do? Well, here I'm going to tell you. We have a music chairman in our church, a hospitality chairman in our church, a communion chairman who takes care of our communion provisions and our fellowship provisions. We have an education and evangelism chairman in our church, a social chairman, a service chairman, any number of lines of service. All of these are available to you. And when these people get so much on their hands that they just can't funnel all the work to all the places it needs to go, then I'm going to tell you about a dozen other things I have in mind. But I'm going to wait until we get those six things filled up when those people are just overloaded with volunteers to serve the body of Christ, then there's even more. But are you volunteering for service? Sixthly, I have to ask you, I don't preach on this, and I think you would have to bear me testimony. I don't preach on this, and I'm always embarrassed when I bring it up. I wish I could be out of the room and have a visiting preacher talk about it, but I have to talk to you about financial support. Somebody has to, because it's in the Bible. Our tithes and our offerings, where are they going? Are they going anywhere? Now, if some of you are tithing, are making significant offerings, consistent offerings, and are not remembering the support of your local congregation, then I want to remind you that we financially need that support in order for this ministry to continue. If you aren't tithing, then maybe I can put it to you very simply by saying, Jesus said even the Pharisees tithe, and they don't come anywhere close to righteousness. He says, they tithe even their garden vegetables, but they haven't learned the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy. Now, there are some in our congregation who think they know the weightier matters of the law. They might consider themselves experts in the law. But I wonder whether they tithe, whether they even take the elementary baby steps. Anybody can turn around and write a check for a tenth of his income. Don't have to be an eloquent speaker, don't have to take a lot of time. The financial support of the church is crucial. And seventhly, showing personal interest in all of the members of the church. Personal interest, so much so that when I finish this morning, Kathy should be inundated with people saying, yes, all right to Linda. People should have been asking all along, Charlie, what can I do for you to help you through this tough time? Now, we do have women in our congregation who are pregnant from time to time, and, and I appreciate, warmly appreciate, Uh, the nice things that are done for them. We need to show the same concern for all of our members. We need to have lives that say, well, it's not that I just have five or ten minutes or even a couple of hours this week that I can give for somebody else, but my life should be lived for the sake of ministering to others. Well, as I see it, these are some of the implications. I haven't touched all of it, but I've talked far too long already. These are some of the implications of what it means to be a covenant community, a community created by God's redemptive covenant if we are a covenant community, then that calls for our cooperation and it calls for our commitment to the ways of the Lord and to one another. I trust that um, the three problems that I mentioned at the beginning of our service this morning will not be problems we have with respect to the church of Jesus Christ. That we won't say about somebody who's suffering halfway around the world, that we won't say about the church as we do somebody else, well, I don't know anything about that person. What do I care? Or we won't say, well, I don't agree with their ideology, so if they're not getting along all right, what's that to me? Or we won't say, well, as somebody says about a mistress, when it's convenient and when I'm interested, then I'll avail myself. The church, when it's treated that way, when you treat the church that way, the Bible says you in turn treat the head of the body, the husband of the wife, In the same way, let's pray. Lord, we pray that you might give us such a spirit that we would recognize that inasmuch as we've done any of these things, for good or for ill, to the least of your brothers, we've done them to you. And we pray for your forgiveness and for your strengthening by your spirit. To not only see, but now live obediently in terms of that covenant community and corporate body that you have so graciously called out in this world. We want to thank you from the bottom of our hearts that you have incorporated us in that body so that we are not left outside the new Jerusalem. And on the day of judgment will not be invited to be part of your kingdom. but rather suffer the terrors of genuine individualism where there is weeping and wailing and the gnashing of teeth. Restore to us the joy of our salvation this morning and the joy of our communion with one another as your people. Give us a true love for one another. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.